This is the first time that you're joining us. Um, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Hope you've had a, a nice couple of weeks. Um, we've somehow reached the end of the, the year and of all our programs. This is the final Borderless Book Club of 2020, which just seems completely insane. Um, doesn't feel like all that long ago since we were sort of starting up as this really thrown together idea of something that would be nice to do for six weeks while we'd be in lockdown and then it would all be over so we wouldn't have to keep doing it <laughs> which obviously it's pretty funny these days um but hey thanks for sticking with it this far i'm really pleased that we uh, are joined this evening by theodora from tilted access press and morgan giles translator of tokyo ueno station by you Mary, which hopefully you've all read now just won the national book award for translated literature in the usa which is a really exciting really big um achievement so <laughs> congratulations um and yes yeah, so i'm looking forward to hearing what you guys all thought of this this book later um so i'll start off by asking theodora to quickly uh, introduce herself and talk a little bit about tilted access press and um, the kind of books that you publish hi theodora thanks for joining us this evening hello um i'm theodora um i manage tilted access um we publish um literature by asian writers translated into a variety of Englishes. Um, we were founded by Deborah Smith, who herself is a translator from Korean, who translated, who won the Man Book Award for International for Translated Literature. <laughs> Can I get the name right? Um, for The Vegetarian by Han Kang. Um, and um, for those who've been with the Borderless Book Club for a while, um, you'll know that we publish um, literature from basically right across Asia, so from Turkey to Japan via Uzbekistan, India, Thailand, etc., etc. And we're interested in a variety of literatures. So um, we've published, um, we're publishing more poetry now. Um, we're publishing our first um, non-fiction title next year. Um, we, but the, most of what we've published is fiction. And because we're translator-led, we, um, a lot of the books come to us um, from pitches by translators. And that's exactly what happened with Tokyo in a Station, which Morgan will be able to tell you more about. Thank you, Theodora. Um, and hi, Morgan, thanks so much for joining us this evening. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about this book and how you found it and how you came to translate and publish it? Hi, it's really nice to be here and talk to all of you. Um, uh, I found Tokyo Oena Station. Um, there used to be a used Japanese bookstore in London and I would go in all the time and just buy whatever titles appealed to me. Uh, and I went in one day and I saw a few books by you, Mary. Um, most of her books have really um, titles that stand out a lot, like men or suicide um so i bought a few of those and read them on the bus home and thought this is incredible and then the next month tokyo in a station came out in japan um and as soon as i read it i felt that i had to translate it um this was in 2014 so long before tilted access began um but 
the idea of translating it really didn't leave my head. And then when Deborah started Tulsidaxis, um, it seemed like such a natural fit for the mission of the publisher that um, I really never considered taking it to anywhere else. Um, and because Yumiri is um, Korean, um, she's a Korean resident of Japan, born and raised in Japan. Um, it felt like a good fit for her as well. She felt that she could um, she could trust in Tultadaxis to handle who she is and her books uh, in a way that, that felt right for her. So. Yeah, it's really interesting that you sort of um, found it and had it in mind before Tultadaxis was, was even created and then you, you, you sort of approached Deborah about it. I mean, obviously now loads of publishers would say that they would have taken it on, obviously, but, uh, but at the time it felt like um, such a, an odd novel, kind of halfway ghost story, halfway social comment that, uh, that I couldn't, couldn't think of anyone else that I would want to work with it on than, than Tilted Axis. Yeah. So you just mentioned um, a second ago about how Yumiri is of, of Korean descent. Um, and if there's a specific word for it, I'll probably say it wrong. Like, is, it, is it Zainichi? Zainichi, yeah. Zainichi, yeah. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what that really means in the Japanese context um, to be of this like a specifically Korean um, heritage and then how that sort of, um, I know it's presented as, as you, Mary, having then this outsider's perspective and how that um, informs the writing of Tokyo Ueno Station. So Zainichi generally refers to people and the descendants of people who were in Japan when Korea was still a Japanese colony. Um, so in a lot of cases, these are people that have never lived in Korea, as Yumiri has never lived in Korea. Um, she doesn't speak Korean, but she's a citizen of South Korea. Because Japan doesn't allow um, dual citizenship, this is a, a situation that a lot of uh, Zainichi people find themselves in. Um, they have to choose um, if they want to keep Korean citizenship or take on Japanese citizenship. and. Uh, for a lot of people, it's a very emotional issue because of the history behind it. Um, sorry, what was the rest of your question? Oh, I, I was, yeah, that was the kind of the first part was asking, you know, what that, what that really means in, in Japanese society. I know it's, it's touched upon in some of the, um, of the articles that Theodora shared with us, but I'm not sure everyone will necessarily have read them anyway. Um, but also like how that um, then is like comes across in, in the, the, the themes that she chooses to write about and specifically in this book um, and how it kind of informs her writing, I suppose. Hmm. So Zainichi Koreans in Japan, um, because they, they occupy this very kind of um, strange space being both Korean, but also being usually born and raised in Japan, often speaking only Japanese, um, they're very discriminated against in a lot of uh, aspects of life. Um, they can't vote. Um, I, a lot of things are changing, but uh, in the past they would have to report to the local government center like every few months just to um, 
say hello and be observed, basically. Um, so Zainichis in Japan um, are, are, are very kind of um, perhaps unwanted reminder of uh, wartime events. And because of that, um, because of her identity as a, a Zainichi Korean, uh, Yumiri has experienced quite a lot of um, bullying as a child. Um, and as an adult, she has experienced quite a lot of abuse and harassment um, from people that do not think that Zainichi people should be writing literature in Japanese. Um, I mean, even, even today, uh, I have seen people saying that uh, she shouldn't be celebrated as a Japanese author, even though she writes in Japanese, is born and raised in Japan. Um, so there's, there's this constant tension. And I think because of that, she, she always says that she writes books for people that don't have anywhere to belong. Um, and she says that she probably started writing herself in order to create a place for herself to belong in the world. Um, and because of this uh, sort of outsider perspective that she's had her whole life, she's always very drawn to stories about other people that are kind of on the outside of mainstream society in, in various ways because of their identity or economically or racially. Um, she never, uh, never stops questioning the borders of, of what is respectable society. Yeah, thank you. I'm sorry. I feel like my, maybe my internet is a bit, um, patchy because I, I, I keep, can't tell if, if you've stopped talking or if it's just frozen. Sorry. No, but that was, that was really, really interesting. Thank you for, for elaborating on that. Cause I, I feel like you can, you can see that so clearly in this, in this book, in the character of Kazu and the, the way that she chooses to focus on, um, not just his life, but also the wider kind of community of, of the homeless people living in, in, in this Ueno park. Um, and yeah, really showing like another side to Japan, which I feel like as, and this is also slightly mentioned, I think in, in some of the articles that, that we shared, but um, it's perhaps a side of Japan that we don't really think of in like the sort of Western idea of Japan. Um, this side of, I don't know, of, pov of poverty and, um, I've forgotten the word of that I was looking for, but, um, but, but also that the authorities in, in Japan are also trying to sort of hide away and that's kind of obviously a recurring theme. Um, I just wonder, you know, um, how important that was for you when you read this book and you decided you wanted to translate it. Was that something that kind of informed your desire to see it published in, to, to, to translate it and then see it published in English to perhaps challenge those ideas of Japan? Yes, in some ways. I mean, definitely I wanted to I wanted to translate something that would that would show a bit more of the reality of Japan. Um, all very often, all that we see in the Western media is crazy stuff from Japan. You know, really wacky Japan, or we see the beautiful side of it—the sort of PR image that um, that people want to see, basically. But the truth is in, in any country, in any society, there are things that, that we all 
would rather not see um, and probably would rather not have on display for other people, um, whether you, you, know, you talk about homelessness, for example. And, and so the other kind of reason that I really wanted to translate this novel is because I feel like it shines an excellent light on things in our own countries that we would probably rather ignore. Um, most people do ignore the homeless. Um, I'm including myself in that most times. You know, sometimes you just walk past people and you try not to think about it really. Um, but reading a novel doesn't give you the luxury of ignoring things. Um, and it gives you an experience of being inside someone's head that you probably cannot get any other way. Um, so for that reason, yes, it was, it was a lot about wanting to show another side of Japan, but it was also about wanting to cast attention on things in the United Kingdom or in America that, uh, that I feel like we don't look at hard enough. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's obviously um, the whole, the whole problem of homelessness is, is very pertinent to, to our, our societies as well. And also, I mean, the whole idea of like the imperial family being the reason that they have to be moved away is something that can definitely, you can definitely, you know, apply to, to the UK specifically. Um, but just generally as well, I suppose, um, if you think about things like all those anti-homeless, like, structures where they put spikes on the floor for no reason and that sort of thing, all about sort of keeping up appearances. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, so my next question was about um, so much of the sort of references in this novel to various Japanese historical events, um, cultural references, I suppose, and also a geographical um, element of it as well, like where you have um, the action kind of switching between Tokyo and Fukushima and the different regions. Um, and I just wondered, you know, when you were translating that, um, if you were sort of con concerned about how to convey some of those elements of the text? Absolutely. Um, I will, however, say that that there's very little that I added in way of explanation in the translation. Um, Mary's books very often do have this kind of didactic element to them. She like she has done a lot of research and she wants to tell you about it. Um, and so any any like explanation of historical figures or events, aside from maybe one small thing, is is in the original. Um, but that, I mean, that required a fair amount of research on, on my part as well and trying to phrase things in a way that, that it wouldn't be completely inaccessible to someone without, um, you know, a Japanese background was, was a little bit difficult at times. Um, that was... That was definitely the thing that I was most worried about was would people get too bogged down in these details to see the bigger picture of the novel? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know if it succeeded. I hope so. I, mean, I, I, I think that when, when I was reading it, like I didn't find it, you know, sort of just dis distracting or, or too, 
maybe like difficult to follow or anything, but I did find it very interesting how there was so much that, you know, I was not already, not already aware of and had to think about. Um, but yeah, it's really, I, th I thought it was especially interesting how she used like the different characters to sort of give those little, I don't know, lessons or, or if that's the right kind of word for them. Um, but they're also kind of external to Kazu as well. And, and she's sort of, yeah, putting them in through the voices of these other characters. Um, but yeah, I just wondered, um, you know, how you, yeah, when, you, when you're translating for, and you, you do have that cultural and historical, et cetera, you have that knowledge of, of, the, of the country that it's, all, that it's being referred to and you have to, you have to try and, I don't know, put that in, into a text that's gonna be read by someone who doesn't have that same knowledge. Yeah, I, I can't remember exactly which parts. There, there were two things that I said to her. Uh, I don't think your general English reader is going to understand this or what it means. Would you mind writing like a sentence to explain? And she said, well, I don't know what they don't know about it. So why don't you do it? Yeah. <laughs> it's just, isn't it? <laughs> it's such a difficult thing to try and, you know, work out. Um, how much to bridge that gap or wh whether the gap is even there in the first place, I suppose. Um, so I was, I mean, as you, you just said, you, you spoke to Miri about this and I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about your relationship with her and how you work together on this translation. And in um, the inter your interview that you did, you t mentioned that you spent a weekend with her in, in her hometown. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that and how it might have informed your understanding of the characters and, and of the text. Sure. Um, Mary and I have what I think is probably an unusually close relationship for an author and a translator. Um, when I, I moved to Japan three years ago and she she was very, very helpful with like all kinds of things like helping me find some place to live even. Um, but uh, when I had when I had finished the translation of Tokyo Ueno Station, um, and I was still living in Tokyo, um, she invited me to visit uh, Minami Soma in Fukushima, um, which is where she lives now. Um, she lives in a place called Odaka, which is 15 kilometers uh, from the uh, Fukushima Daiichi nuclear reactor, uh, which exploded. Um, it was in the the sort of the legal exclusion zone around the reactor. Um, so it's only the last few years that people have been able to go back in and start living there again. Um, but so I went up so that we could work through edits on the book together because um, there are always a few lingering questions <laughs> up until the end, unfortunately. Um, but I also really, really wanted to to visit Minamisoma and see the area that Kazu is from um, with my own eyes. Uh, and it was, it was an absolutely incredible experience. I can't really, I find it very difficult to put into words um, everything that that experience gave me, but uh, I was perhaps most surprised by how much um, of what goes in the novel is is true um, is very real. The um, the priest that appears in the novel um, during the funeral, um, I met him. <laughs> He's real. Uh, I actually went back to the hotel that night and changed um, how he speaks in the book because it didn't it didn't match 
you know, what he seems like in real life. Um, so that was, that was quite funny, but, um, but I realized later that if I had, if I had not visited Fukushima, if I had not visited Minami Soma um, and seen it with my own eyes, then, then I really would not have had a full enough understanding of the world of Tokyo Ueno Station to, um, to produce a decent translation. Um, because even though the vast majority of the novel takes place in Tokyo, um, the heart of it, and and Kazu's heart, Kazu's mind is always there. Um, and Fukushima is, I think, reflected in in almost every word um, of the novel. Um, yeah, well, that's so fascinating. Like, I mean, it's such an unusual experience, I suppose, to be able to go and um, experience all the, all the sort of I don't know, the, like like you just ex, um, described it, the world of the book so closely, and I'm with the author, and then even meet the people who inform the characters. That's really fantastic um, that you got to do that. Um, so that, that, yeah, thank you for telling us about that. It's re really really interesting. Um, so I wanted to ask you a bit about um, I, I don't know the, the things that were difficult about the translation. You mentioned that there's a lot of the Fukushima dialect, um, and also that Mary's prose is very I think you described it as tight um, and something that I sort of noticed as I as I was reading it and, and thought maybe this was something that might, might have been difficult to in your translation was how um, how it moves around so much but it doesn't have any chapters to break up or anything it's quite a sort of wandering text if that makes sense um, so yeah and I've realized I've just like thrown three different things at you there but um, if you'd like to elaborate on any of those Sure. Uh, dialect, first thing. Yes, dialect was really, really difficult to deal with. Um, I was not really that familiar with um, Fukushima dialect before I started. Um, thankfully, I had some help from some friends that are from Fukushima. And actually, um, Mary introduced me to her friend who actually helped her write the Fukushima dialect in the novel because she doesn't speak that dialect. Um, so that was tremendously helpful uh, to actually get to talk to, I guess, her translator. Um, <laughs> um, but figuring out how to handle it in English was an entirely different thing. Um, I, I have like a bit of an allergy to dialect in fiction. It, it can, when it's good, it's good, right? But when it's not, good or not authentic, it makes the whole book just kind of rotten. Um, it strips away any sort of um, sense of reality from it. And this is a yeah, book that- really pull you out of it, can't it? If it's not, if it's, if it seems odd or stilted. Totally. Um, so I, I wanted to be very careful with that, but I also, I didn't want to completely discard the dialect element entirely and so um i did i did my best to just put it in a kind of the bits that are in dialect i put in a kind of casual i guess um kind of casual old person english i guess i'm not sure basically made it sound like my dad uh, <laughs> um 
so okay dialect and then you asked about what else about, the, about mary's prose you, you said that was the in your interview so that was the hardest thing about translating it was that her, her prose is so tight and i think you described it as like a very cold deep lake yeah i mean i i think definitely that is a, a byproduct of the the narrator's emotional state is he has all of these very intense um very sad feelings, but he he never really lets them through. And so the the prose is very very measured. Like every every word is feels very contained. Um, so I felt that I needed to be very careful not to to put too many kind of emotionally charged words in, even when you know he's discussing really emotional, sad things, but there is always this, this deep sense of restraint. Um, even when, say, talking about how, you know, the sun is a light that never has illuminated him. It's, it's very, like, quite austere. Um, that was, yeah, I still think that was the most difficult thing, was, was maintaining that sense of emotional restraint um, all the way until the end in the final scene when that kind of breaks um, and the language falls apart a little bit. Mm, yeah. And then the last thing I asked about was the, um, the structure of it or the lack of structure, perhaps the way it, it moves around and there's no breaks in it really, or the breaks are very uh, superficial, shall we say, um, and how you approach that. I, that wasn't a particular challenge because I, I think that is, the structure of the book is very informed by the um, the narrative in a lot of ways. As as Kazu is kind of moving in and out of memory and past and present, um, and being alive versus being dead, um, lots of things sort of meld together. So uh, you get conversations running into each other or um, events that don't consecutively follow bumping up against each other. The only thing I will say that is in the original that isn't in my translation that does slightly break things up a little bit is um, there's all these train noises, all these wonderful train noises and constantly going boom, gata, 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 gata. And uh, I, I could not think of an elegant solution to um, put that in the English translation. So that does roughly demarcate kind of quarters of the book. Um, right. But still, I don't think that that would, would be enough to have a sense of separation, mm. really. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting um, <laughs> that, you, that you didn't, you, you decided to leave those out. I think it would sound too cartoony or I mean, I'm sure I'll, I'll wake up like maybe 15 years from now and I'll have come up with the perfect solution, but it will be way too late. <laughs> um, okay, so I have one, one more quick question before I go to the questions in the chat, which is, um, so we were just discussing before everyone else joined us that you are translating another of Mary's novels and um, would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Sure, I'm translating a book called The End of August, um, which is huge. It's a semi-biographical novel about her grandfather, 
who was a marathon runner in Korea in the 1930s and 40s. Um, in many ways, it's sort of an epic, uh, if, okay, if Tokyo Ueno Station is like an alternative history of the Japanese 20th century, then the end of August is sort of an alternative history of the Japanese occupation of Korea in many ways. It's sort of her way of answering the question, why is she there? Why is she in Japan? Why is she a Japanese writer? Mm-hmm. But it's it's a massive multilingual kind of polyphonic novel, which there's all these voices of the living and the dead jostling together for attention. Um, yeah, if you like Tokyo in a station, I think you'll like the end of August. If you hated Tokyo in a station, don't read the end of August. <laughs> Tokyo in a station is times 20. It's, yes, it's funny that it's like such a huge book where it's such a, a tiny, slender little one. But I know it sounds fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll look forward to it for sure. I'm sure many other people will too. So um, yeah, thank you. I'm just going to go to the chat now and ask a few questions from there. So um, this is one that I'm sometimes a bit wary of asking translators because I feel like it gets asked of translators from certain languages and not from others. But it's still an interesting question. A couple of people have asked it, which is how did you get into learning Japanese and translating from Japanese? Okay. Um, where I'm from in Kentucky, where I am right now, um, is the home of the first Toyota plant in North America. And I, I probably have Toyota to thank for that. Um, probably because of that, there's a really strong sister cities relationship between my area and uh, a place in Yamanashi Prefecture in Japan. Um, And when I was 12, I was picked to go on a week-long exchange to Japan. Um, So that's how I got interested in learning Japanese. um, And I stuck with it. I I think at one point I thought I would maybe go to work for Toyota. Um, but actually, uh, books are way more fun than cars. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. Um, that's not what I was expecting at all. Um, that's, that's great. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, so Paul has a question, which is, to what extent has the experience of seeing Japan through you, Mary's eyes, changed your perception of and relationship with Japanese, Japanese people in Japan? Um, I don't think it's necessarily changed my my perception. What has changed is um, I I am immediately aware of who is racist against Koreans in Japan because as soon as I say who I work with, they make a face. So that I mean that is that is the big change is uh, I now can instantly tell who to be friends with and who not to be friends with. But um, other than that, reading reading you, Mary's work has has opened my eyes up, but not necessarily just about Japan. I think um, while while her work is about the underside of Japanese society or the the underremarked elements of Japanese society, I think I think more than anything, it's it's made me reflect on the societies in which I live. Um, mm. So. Mm. 
It's really interesting. Thank you. Um, so Esme um, asked if you can tell us a bit about ghost stories in Japanese literature and culture and how this novel relates. It's a really interesting question because actually the first um, Tilted Axis book that we did in this book club was Where the Wild Ladies Are, which is, a, if you haven't read it um, and you're interested, is, is a whole short story collection, which are kind of retellings of ghost stories. So we've talked a bit about this specific thing before, but in a very different uh, in, with a very different text as the the basis of the discussion so um yeah i mean well, how how do you see this this book tokyo when station relating to that culture of japanese ghost stories i'm i'm not sure i'm not sure how much it does really um i i think i think maybe miri is is coming at this as a ghost story from a slightly different perspective whether that's because um she's not japanese or uh, it's because she's Christian. Um, I, I, I'm not, not totally sure. I don't know. I actually haven't thought about that question. It's an interesting one. I'll have to think about that. That's, <laughs> that's um, and I'm going to take this as the last one before we go to the break. It's actually a question for you, Theodora, from Daniel, um, who asks if you, as Tilted Axis, made any structural interventions with the novel. Um, and generally speaking, what your approach is when it comes to structural questions with translated literature. Um, Morgan would know more about that, about Tokyo and the Station, because I didn't edit the book. But in general, um, I don't think we at Tilted Axis do a lot of structural interventions um, in the books that would go counter to what we stand for. The exception is when a book hasn't been edited at all in um, in the original, and actually this is the first time it's going through an editing stage. Which we do have one of our authors who um, who publishes books with us, and it's the first time that the book is edited. So then, you know, we all together edit the book like you would a book that isn't edited. But um, I'm assuming that you, Miri's. Um, Japanese editor has already edited the book. So um, if we did structural changes, then we would do it to please an English speaking market. And I don't think that's really in line with what we want to do. Yeah, no, there were there were absolutely no structural edits made. Um, in fact, there's only one, maybe one sentence that appears in the original that doesn't appear in the translation, other than the train noises. Um, and that was fully agreed between myself and Mary um, and had very little to do with tilted axis. Mm. Great, thank you. Thank you guys. Um, so yeah, we'll go to the breakout rooms now. So um, I'll put, put you in your, your groups now and you'll have 20 minutes to talk about the discussion questions that we sent out in the email. Um, I'm just going to look at the breakout rooms. God, it's done it again. I, this happens to me so often. Oh, do you know what it is? Actually, it's entirely my fault. I didn't click save on the breakout rooms that I had pre-assigned, so they're not pre-assigned. <laughs> I'm really sorry about the longest day today. Um, <laughs> so you're going to go into breakout rooms now. I'm going to create them. I'm going to put you in them. And yeah, just bear with me a second while I sort this out. Talk amongst yourselves, as they say, apart from you're muted, so that doesn't work at all. I was gonna I was gonna go ahead and do that, Maddie. You're doing a fantastic job managing the Zoom. Don't worry about it. 
And um, Morgan, I just wanted to say, like, just what a pleasure it was to read this book in English. And it would have just been so sad to not have that opportunity um, had it remained in the original tongue. And what a beautiful job of translating. I can think of about seven or eight sentences that just like stopped me cold in my tracks. And I, even as I, they were so beautiful. And even as I read them, I thought how, what a challenge to take a language and I'm sure it was beautiful in the original, but to maintain that in, in the English language, which is so much more limited in many ways, like rel relative to other languages. What an awesome job you did, Morgan, seriously. Thank you very much. I mean, I think, language is is always a limitation every language is its own set of limitations um, that's what makes translation challenging and exciting really um, finding the ways to make your language's limitations work for um, for the the work that you've chosen to translate yeah that's very nice to hear thank you thanks for diving in there casey <laughs> and uh, saving us from an awkward moment while I'm just tapping away. Anyway, I've sorted it out now. It's fine. It's all going to be fine. You guys are going to have a great time. So, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, have a good discussion. Um, I'm sure you've got lots to talk about um, in this book. Um, so yeah, I'm going to open the rooms now and we'll all come back in 20 minutes. Hope you all had a nice, interesting discussion in those 20 minutes. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so basically now, if anyone wants to share their thoughts on behalf of their group, on behalf of themselves, anything goes really. So just say so in the chat and I will call on you um, one by one. And also if you have any more questions for Morgan or for Theodora, um, then you're welcome to ask them. But yeah. Whoever wants to go first. It's so funny, I, I have to say actually, like from, from like meeting to meeting, like depending on the book or maybe depending on who's, who's here or what, sometimes people are really eager to talk and other times people are really shy. <laughs> to go first. Maddie, I'm gonna help you out again. I'm gonna volunteer to go first. I was gonna go get a coffee, but instead I'm gonna do this just to just keep us rolling. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so, uh, I think I think the generals. I think most of us really enjoyed this book. Um, I think that's pretty universal. Some of the questions I, I find this every time, though. I always am in groups that have such great discussions. We can't possibly get to all of these like really complex uh, double barrel questions. So we're going to do the best we can. But that's. Um, and I just would, would jump in to say, don't feel obliged to go through all the questions. Go for the ones. Okay. That we provide enough that they kind of covers various themes, but you you don't have to go through all of them. You just go for the ones that you know, appeal to you, so, but I'm, yeah. Right. I'm just, I'm a rule abider, that's my problem. Okay, so um, that's good to know though. So the first question I, I thought was really the most interesting, is this a ghost story? So our group said, I think in general, most of us were, were sort of like, no, um, the, the afterlife was a very effective method or tool, right, to, to basically tell a story by incorporating that approach. Um, and, and we thought that actually the story felt more, more like the story of someone caught in limbo. Um, I think, I can't remember who said that, but I think that was a really good uh, frame for it. So this person that's sort of floating halfway between the worlds, right? They're, they're not 
they're not fully dead, they're not fully alive. It's almost like, and, and even with the narrative, we're not sure when he's speaking, having already passed, or if he's speaking while he's still alive. So the, the, the perspective jumping around is interesting too. Um, we thought, I, and this was one of my beautiful sentences that I said to Morgan about, and I think it's really early on, but it says the sentence um, that there's, there may be an ending, but there's not an end, right? And so we thought that that was actually a metaphor, we felt like that was a metaphor for the entire book in a way. So not if that made sense, I'm glad to see Morgan. It made sense to Morgan at least. So for, as a metaphor for the larger story, it wasn't so much about an afterlife or a ghost story, which I think sort of dichotomizes it in a very concrete way that, that maybe in the West we're more comfortable of thinking of things that way. But for us, it was very, very fluid. Um, with a lot of movement in time back and forth. Uh, there was no clear ending that applied to a lot of the themes we saw and it was intimately interwoven with the how the, 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 the how the language, even conversations were not always clear to us uh, side by side, whether they were happening in the present or if, if it was a retrospective or if it was after he had passed. So again, that very fluid sense. And that very fluid sense, by the way, is related to um, the last question we tried to deal with having to do with water, uh, water in its various forms, such a prominent feature of this book for, for many of us, and not in, usually in a good way, sort of in a threatening way. Um, water, tsunamis, oceans, etc. So ghost story, not really, sort of more of a story about being in limbo. Um, the next question, uh, is there such a thing as a natural disaster? Um, one in our group came up with this beautiful way of describing it. She said, um, I mean, a natural disaster by definition only occurs within the context of humanity, right? So it's not a natural disaster if humans aren't there. We, it, you know, the forest doesn't claim itself to have, you know, experienced a natural disaster, right? So, um, so, so how do you go about separating those things? Right? So is everything social and political? We were less sure about that, but a natural disaster itself only occurs because humanity is implicated in it. So I guess if that's the answer to the question about society. Does that make sense, what I just said? Not, any, kind of, a little bit? Okay. I think so. I think um, with the tsunami especially, it's particularly interesting because the tsunami is sort of natural disaster, but then it impacts on the nuclear power plant, and that's very much a human disaster, but the two are kind of very much um, you can't you can't separate those two in that in that particular instance. So um, no, it's a it's it's a really interesting way of thinking about it. That um, yeah, it's only a natural disaster because that's the way that we have framed it. So yeah, so no, it does make sense. Right. If a if a forest caught on fire and there was no one around, I mean, it would burn until it burned itself out, and then new growth would repopulate. And I'm not sure the forest would define it as a natural disaster, right? It's a natural disaster because humans are implicated. We were thinking about the forest fires in California and Australia, and um, sort of the implication on humanity. So of course, as soon as you involve humans, you involve social and political. Um, financial, economic, all kinds of concerns, right? So it immediately becomes sort of this hot amalgam of things. Okay, so uh, number three, the third question we addressed, we skipped over the imperial family question, um, was about sounds and voices. And I thought that my group were just awesome. They came up with all of these really beautiful 
it painted a picture, I think, of the idea of sounds and voices in this story effectively blurring, um, uh, you know, the way that a, 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 a sort of typical standard book is constructed with very concrete, uh, someone said, you know, chapters, right, delimiters. So this is where this starts and ends. This is where that starts and ends. With a conversation, there's going to be quotation marks. Here's where, you know, here's what she said. Here's what he said. And when you don't have any of that, even train announcements or a picture on a wall gets described in the same flow of text as an idea or a word. Um, so the sounds and the voices were as fluid. You know what? I think we have an overall theme. The overall theme is like fluidity and water. So uh, the shifting between the present day, uh, he's having a conversation. Is he alive or is he already dead? Right. Not, not being sure until you, until you understand the context around it. The thing that caught me off guard was the granddaughter, uh, in the tsunami totally did not see that coming. Right. And so I actually had to go back and reread that a couple times to figure out what was happening, when it was happening, when it was happening in his lifetime. Still not sure about a lot of things um, in the book, but I think that's part of the beauty of this book is just the sounds and the voices were very fluid and there was a constant shifting of perspective kind of keeps you on your toes, but it also stays true to, so instead of the structure dictating the story, the story was, was in command or in control. Does that, you know what I mean? But like, yeah. So the one thing that I was very curious about, and I think we agreed would be interesting, is we're not sure how much we are missing as a result of the train sounds, which most of us did not know about, by the way, until Morgan mentioned it. Um, how much of the story did we miss as a result of not having that present in the book? Because that seems like, it, I, I mentioned that I've actually lived next to a subway stop, so I know what the significance of that sound is. It's pretty um, oppressive, and it's, it, is, it permeates your entire life 24-7. And so I'm curious. We were curious about that. So that was a question more than a comment. And I think let's let off of there and let other people um, uh, take a turn, the other groups. Thank you. Thank you, Casey. Uh, Morgan, did you want to say something about the train sounds? Sure. Um, I was really um, sad that I, I didn't find a good solution for the train sounds because I think that they they add a um, a feeling a feeling of like an intrusive thought that is going through Kazu's mind um, throughout his life in Ueno Park, um, and it it also probably adds a bit of foreshadowing of um, how his life ends. But yeah, like I said before, I just, just could not come up with a way to represent the sounds in English that didn't feel cartoonish and thus humorous to me. And that was the last thing in the world that I wanted that to be because it, it, it should be like this sort of harbinger of, of his fate. Um, so yeah, you're, you're, missing, you're missing some shades um, there, but hopefully, hopefully it's it's still kind of present yeah i think the i think that regardless the 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 trains and the this the you know it's stating that it's in it's in the title like it's, it's it's present all the way all the way through um but it is interesting that um having not um 
not even like heard of this park before there's so much in it you like there's there's so many different elements of this actual space that they're in that are like referred to at various points there's you know there's the museum and then there's a zoo and there's a pond and and a memorial and there's so many different parts of it that kind of come back um but yeah i suppose the train sounds of, would remind you that it's it's also the the, the presence of of the trains but i don't I don't maybe didn't feel that there was um, you know, something missing from it, but um, yeah. Well, thank you for bringing it up, Casey, and um, thank you for, for all those points. It's a really interesting discussion by the sounds of it. Um, so, Sam, would you like to go next? Thanks, Maddie. Actually, just building on that, I wondered if obviously it's not substituted in, but the fact you have all the announcements from the subway station or the train station that you they can hear almost substitutes a little bit for the fact you don't have those because it still has that same sort of like you say like the whole living next to a subway station the invasiveness of that always being there for you so I wondered about that um so yeah we discussed a few of the questions um I'll sort of build a couple of things on a couple of things that Casey said um we talked about death and the afterlife and rather than necessarily seeing as a ghost story we saw the whole thing of him being dead mirroring his life as a homeless man and particularly the fact that the being in limbo thing and being right on the margins of society and as a ghost he sort of sees he sees everything happening but he doesn't see anything he isn't seen whereas and as a homeless man the same thing they see everything happening around them but they aren't seen like we said and the examples we gave were about the conversations that we see the little spikes of conversations particularly the one we mentioned was the the women in the museum, those conversations that waft, basically waft up to him, the same as being a ghost, the same as being a homeless person, those conversations that would drift to you as, they walk, as someone walked past. Um, we also talked a little bit about the concept of the, uh, the beginning of the afterlife as a waiting room. And Annie talked about it reminding her of a film, and Alison mentioned the same film, so it was a really good film. Um, and about people who died in the way died they had to wait in the waiting room and they had to choose a memory to take with them to the afterlife and I don't know if I can't remember what it's called I didn't write it down I don't know if Annie wants to put it in the chat or so and tell us what it was called because I've forgotten um, the other thing we said about the afterlife was we talked briefly about the word bardo that Jenny mentioned earlier but I can see Jenny is going planning to talk next so I will leave that to Jenny to talk about <laughs> um, Moving on to the stuff about natural disaster, um, again, we said a lot of the same stuff that Casey's group said, but one thing we talked about was the fact that a natural disaster becomes a societal disaster far more for some people than others, and any natural disaster has its impact because of the borders in society. Even what we're living through at the moment, this pandemic, it's affected the more vulnerable people in society far more than the wealthy people. I, I saw a really good phrase at the beginning. We were always told we're all in the same boat. But actually, no, we're all in the same storm. We all have different boats. And I think that's also quite applicable to the natural disasters we see in this novel. Um, I'm sorry, I, I work for a children's charity. I've spent my, like, the last nine months effectively writing this again and again and again and again. So I will keep saying <laughs> this. Um, the other thing we chatted about briefly was the stuff about the nation, um, particularly in regards to the Olympics, um, talking about how it was effectively this 
the more disadvantaged people, almost this underclass of people who were used to build the Olympic Stadium, the Olympic infrastructure, and sort of discarded when it's done. And not necessarily not having a, the same sort of nation meaning the same thing to them, but these people, we, got the, we, we don't get the impression from Kazoo that he really cared about the Olympics at all. Like, we don't get any mention of him having seen any of the athletes or watched any of the events or even kept any sort of like indication that it was a massive event far from, aside from the fact that later on during the Olympic bidding process for 2020 they moved aside that's sort of his only reference to that um so we talked about how the people who are more likely to be sort of almost involved in making these things happen in the in the physical sense it's of less significance to them no significance to their life because it just means nothing to it can't mean anything to them in the same way um, yeah, we actually had a brief question for Morgan about Miri that Morgan might be able to answer. And we, we wondered if Miri has any sort of specific relationship to sport, because with this, the stuff about the Olympics here, and I think you mentioned earlier that it was her father or grand, her grandfather's marathon runner. There's also someone in this novel when he's reading the signs about the, the giving thanks. One of them is thanks for helping finish the marathon. And we wondered if there was any sort of connection anything that you could comment on um i i think i think mary's grandfather being a marathon runner is is really the only connection to sport that she has although she she runs herself um and has run a few marathons also um so maybe maybe that's why but um i i should have mentioned earlier talking about the end of august this is it's actually another olympics related novel so um, honestly, it's it's so really good for me that they have postponed the Olympics. I hope that they keep postponing it until the end of August comes out. <laughs> but I think I think she's she's interested in sport because it's 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 one of the ways I think that people push themselves to an extreme. Um, one of the more legally sanctioned ways that people push themselves to an extreme. So, so for her, it's it's maybe an interesting way to think about. Um, yeah, extremities of, of human life and endurance and, um, you know, the courage that it takes to um, commit to something so long term and, and all of those good things, all those reasons why people treat sport as metaphor in fiction and media. Well, thanks, Morgan, and thanks, Sam. Um, lots of really interesting um, takes on the, on the questions that we that, that we set and um, yeah, I especially liked your very um, relevant, I suppose, application of, of the whole natural disaster to this pandemic. It's very true. Um, so yeah, it's a good contextualization. So thank you. Um, Jenny, would you like to go now? Sure, sure. So that's a really good points people have made so far. This book has been so wonderful to end on just as a really interesting final read um, so some things that haven't been mentioned before, uh, our group pulled out a lot of really interesting themes and um, everyone really enjoyed the book, um, reading it, but for some of us it took us actually a while to get into it and we were kind of exploring why, why that was, why uh, that might have been and Esme, who actually it's her first time at Borderless this time, so welcome to her, um, she made the, she had the great 
uh, word for it. She said, well, it seemed you know, benumbed, like the, the, he, the narrator is sort of benumbed um, in the beginning. And um, so you're getting this sense of numbness coming through. And that's, that struck really, uh, you know, seemed very true there. And then um, Esma also had this other really wonderful point when we were talking about the voices and the sounds in the book. And she used the word, well, they're kind of collaged in there. Um, it's like this flat collage, which led us into a, you know, a discussion of the beautiful cover, the Tilted Access cover, um, but also this idea of the flat collage of all of the different pastiches, pastiche uh, sounds and images that come in here. And um, Karen had actually done, Karen Burns had done a lot of expl exploration on her own about the roses, the art show of the roses, and she had actually found the images and the text online in Goodreads, and she mentioned that this is definitely worth a look and worth a, um, a visit to go see, so I'm definitely planning to jump in on that. Um, and then uh, with a question about the, the disaster, um, Eve, um, identified that all of these disasters have one thing in common, which is the loss of place. And the loss of place played such an essential role in this book. You see people inhabiting place, places of transit being shifted around, and the search for place um, seemed really um, central. And uh, which ties in with um, the the lack of power that and the way that powers you know the people have already identified that uh, they have the disasters has a, have a societal impact but they impact different people differently. Um, so um, Elena um, tied in this this uh, loss the the loss of power of the people, for example, in the countryside um, and in the park, with also these great shows of grandeur that the imperial palace is putting forth. Um, and this is really interesting to me because you don't see like I never think of monumentalism when I think of Japan, like the way that other maybe European nations focus on building these enormous city structures, but the monumentalism, it comes out instead in the events and the sense of longevity, the long lineages um, that that's give the sense of belonging and sense of place to some people and not to others. Um, and um, what else? Yeah, is the, the ghost story. We didn't really focus very much on the term bardo. Like, I don't know, I know only glancingly about it because of reading Lincoln in the bardo. That was my introduction to this idea of the bardo. And, um, but it is actually a Buddhist term. I looked a little bit more. Um, but we all pretty much agreed with many of the other um, people that it wasn't didn't really seem as much of a gross ghost story as um, Karen's term for it was more of a retrospective or a, a memoir. Um, and the other one, yeah, we agreed that people are really commodified in this book. Uh, relationships are commodified. Um, you, um, other books that we found kind of similar um, was the convenience store woman. A few of us had read that and showed how the, the commodification of people and of relationship happens to serve the all-consuming city. Um, so that's about it. And if anyone would like to chime in, please do. Thank you so much, Jenny. Lots of really interesting um, points, lots to, lots to think about. Um, and um, yeah, and thank you for conveying um, Esme's points as well. Welcome to, to you and welcome to anyone else who's joining us for the first time. It's, it's great that you'd be joining us for the first time on the very last one of the year. Um, 
but yeah, I think, um, yeah, given us lots to think about. So thank you, Jenny. Um, and I think if no one else wants to, to chime in, then we'll probably wrap it up here. Um, yeah, um, we've had loads of really, really, really interesting things um, discussed. And it's been great to hear all your thoughts as always. So yeah, um, thank you so much. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess have a, have a lovely Christmas if you celebrate it and a happy new year. Um, and we'll hopefully see you all again in 2021. Um, so yeah, and we'll be back um, as you've all seen, hopefully in, the, in your email with the new program for the January 2021. This is gonna be the first book. It's called London Under Snow. This is from the first of our new, um, new additions to the book club so they're called from the stamper press and they specialize in catalan literature this is very topical it's called london under snow and it's a collection of short stories that are all set in winter and around christmas so um it's a good one to kick off the program with uh, and you can find all that information as always on our borderless book club um website on the well not website on the page on the pyrene website and um on our twitter instagram blah blah, blah. you you know the drill by now um but yeah i hope to see you all then in just over a month's time um and yeah uh, until then so yeah I, I feel like i should have like some kind of more dramatic send-off or something but uh no really i just want to say thank you so much for for sticking with us this long and for coming back every time and um sharing all your fantastic insightful thoughts with us all um and obviously big thank you um this evening to theodora and morgan for joining us um and discussing Tokyo Wainer Station. Um, it's been great. So, yeah, I'll stop rambling now. I'll just say goodbye. <laughs> uh, see you all next year. Have a good one. Bye, everyone.